Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, Buttonwood columnist at The Economist, sitting in for Simon Long, and this is Money Talks. Later in the programme, now that Article 50 has been triggered, is Dublin, Britain's best friend among the EU27, pushing for the closest possible trading links. There'll be very high tariff barriers going from Ireland into, into Britain, and that would be have a devastating effect on, on that particular part of the economy. And despite Japan's workforce growing by more than 2.2 million, wage gains aren't enough to lift inflation to the Bank of Japan's 2% target. 80 hours of overtime is considered the so-called Koroshi line. That's the line beyond which people become vulnerable to death by overwork. But to start... In the early 20th century, the future seemed bright for horse employment. Within 50 years, however, cars and tractors made short work of equine livelihoods. Some futurists see a cautionary tale for humanity in the fate of the horse. As robots grow more nimble, humans look increasingly vulnerable. A new working paper concludes that between 1990 and 2007, each industrial robot added per thousand workers reduced employment in the US by nearly six workers. I'm joined from our New York office by senior editor Ryan Avent. Ryan, how do you define a robot? Well, in the research that's, that you've mentioned here, the authors are focused very specifically on industrial robots. And the International Federation of Robots defines industrial robots as machines which are automatically programmed, so they operate on their own, also multi-purpose or reprogrammable, so they can do lots of different kinds of tasks. Uh, so it's not just the machines that kind of repeatedly stamp uh, the same piece of metal over and over again. And if, if you know, we look around the world, there aren't that many of these things in use yet. There's only about 2 million of these industrial robots in use worldwide, but their use is, is growing very rapidly. So far, they uh, have been most common in the automotive industry. That's where we see them the most. But they have expanded into uh, quite a few sectors within manufacturing. So they're also common in electronics, in pharmaceutical industries, in uh, metalworking. Uh, I think what will be interesting to watch over the next decade or so is in, in what other contexts we might see uh, robots being used uh, to a greater extent. And uh, certainly there's room for uh, robot surgeons and things of that nature uh, in, in the medical professions. You might see more service robots taking care of people in their homes. And, and they could even appear in, in, in retail settings, moving stock around or, or perhaps, uh, you know, cooking burgers, things like that. 200 years ago, handloom weavers were smashing uh, power-driven weaving machines, the Luddites, as we call them. That was a panic about technology replacing jobs, and yet we've got more people in employment than ever before. Is this worry at the moment about robots just another example of this ancient phenomenon? Uh, to some extent it is, uh, and I think it's certainly true that the expansion and the use of robots is going to create new employment opportunities. Uh, you know, you will see growth in, in jobs, uh, building the robots, programming them, figuring out how to use them in different contexts and things like that. I think the difficult question, um, and this was also an issue in the 19th century, is how good a job are we going to be able to do preparing the workers who are displaced by robots to take the new 
new employment opportunities that are created. Uh, and so in the Industrial Revolution, we uh, were, were pretty effective in uh, moving people to the cities where new jobs were being created, in giving them education to help them fill those new jobs, and in, and in smoothing the adjustment in, in that way. And even so, it was still a difficult adjustment, and that's why the Luddites were smashing their machines. I think it's going to be a lot harder now to, to do all those things. A lot of the cities where the jobs are being created are very expensive, and so people don't want to move there. Uh, and then also, you know, as someone who's been displaced from a manufacturing line can't really go and get a necessarily get a degree in computer engineering in order to program the new robot. So there are going to be a lot of challenges, and in some ways I think it's going to be much harder this time. Is the issue, though, that we think about robots in the wrong way, that they only replace people? They can be used to complement people as well, can't they? People can use robots as part of their daily work and make them more efficient. That's certainly true. That's absolutely true. And that's why I think, you know, the idea that uh, that some people have, have mentioned, Bill Gates mentioned this a while back, that we should tax robots is not really a good one because there are going to be cases in which the use of robots helps people do their job more effectively, allows their, their productivity to rise and the pay that they're able to earn to rise. And we don't want to discourage that. So it's a question of sort of, you know, how much of, of the sort of complementary sort of work are you getting and how much uh, substitution is there going to be? And I think, you know, the, the, the concern is that as, as artificial intelligence improves, as the, you know, the dexterity of these robots improves, that the scope for substitution is much greater than it's ever been in the past. It's a dilemma you've written about elsewhere, isn't it, that we need greater productivity if we're to improve GDP growth. And yet the worry is that greater productivity can only come via automation, which costs workers' jobs. Do you see any easy way out of that sort of dilemma? I don't see an easy way out. And I think it's a very tough one to solve. I mean, if you look at, you know, education and healthcare, the way to reduce costs in those industries is to improve productivity, which, as you say, will probably cost us jobs. Uh, At the same time, what we've seen in a lot of economies is uh, that employment keeps growing, that uh, it, it keeps reaching new levels. Um, but the way that's occurring is through workers accepting very low rates of pay and, and low, you know, wages that are low enough in some situations that firms just don't find it worth their while to go out and invest in these new robots. Uh, and so, you know, we, we want people to stay in work, but we also want high productivity growth. And, you know, so far we haven't really come up with a, a solution in terms of you know, how to change the social safety net, what investments we need to make that's going to allow us to achieve all those different goals. Ryan Avent, thank you very much. Thank you. Next, Ireland and Brexit. Just a week after British Prime Minister Theresa May triggered Article 50, Dublin is deeply worried that the UK's departure from the EU will be disastrous. And it's desperate for the rest of Europe not to forget its plight. I'm joined in the studio here in London by The Economist's economics editor, John O'Sullivan. John, how much is Ireland's economy intertwined with that of the UK? If you look at the the broad figures, after the Second World War, pretty much all of Ireland's exports went to Britain. But that uh, share has dwindled to about 15%. Um, So if you look at it from a sort of export share point of view, it doesn't look like it's 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 a big deal, but it's not a huge deal. I think the problem is, is that when you look at how much value is added in exports. So if you think of the stuff that American multinationals manufacture in in Ireland, a lot of the value comes from somewhere else. And the problem is is that Ireland's exports to to Britain have a very high value added and a very high jobs content to them. 
and particularly in areas like farming and food manufacturing. So there's a sort of traditional sector in Ireland, largely farming, often beef, dairy, frozen pizzas, all that sort of stuff, Kerrygold butter, that's sold into the British market. And clearly, if we, if we were to revert to WTO rules on trade, there'd be very high tariff barriers going from Ireland into, into Britain. And that would be, have a devastating effect on, on that particular part of the economy. So it's a big deal for a, a significant part of Ireland's economy. But it could also be an opportunity. Businesses that base themselves in Britain to be part of the single market might choose to move to Dublin or the rest of Ireland uh, as an English-speaking base within the EU. So Britain and Ireland are essentially competitors for foreign direct investment for places like America and from the English-speaking world. And to the extent that access to the EU is a big lure for that kind of um, foreign direct investment, Britain being outside the EU is an opportunity for Ireland to attract companies that want access to the EU market to Ireland. So you've got a a negative effect coming from what you might call the traditional farming and food manufacturing sector and a potentially positive effect from the sort of more modern FDI-led industries, finance being amongst them, of course, but also pharmaceuticals, tech and so on. And what's the worst case scenario as far as Ireland is concerned? The worst case scenario is, is hard Brexit. So in two years' time, trade between Britain and the EU reverts to WTO rules, which means a very steep increase in tariffs faced by Irish food producers and farmers selling into Britain simply makes them uneconomical. And that's a large part of the economy suddenly is devastated. The best scenario for Ireland, of course, is a long transition deal. You know, we're talking here sort of seven, eight years, which allows some time for Ireland's traditional sector to maybe reorient its exports towards continental Europe. That will require moving a little bit up market because at the moment it's very much the sort of frozen pizza um, cheddar cheese, which I don't think you're going to be selling into you know, super hypermarkets and Carrefour and so on. So Ireland will have to find a way of moving up market in that, in that regard. But they're not going to be able to do that in two years, but perhaps in eight years that would be possible. John O'Sullivan, thank you very much. If you have any thoughts on what you hear on Money Talks, do get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio. Or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Finally, Japan's unemployment is at its lowest level since 1994. Remarkably, despite Japan's demographic decline, 2.2 million more people are working today than they were when Abenomics, Prime Minister Abe's growth programme, first began. And despite this, wage gains aren't yet strong enough to lift inflation to the Bank of Japan's 2% target. Why is this? I'm joined from our Hong Kong office by The Economist's senior economics writer and emerging markets editor, Simon Cox. Simon, what's the fundamental problem with Japan's labour market? Well, you could say that uh, the labour market is actually doing rather well, that we're seeing an employment miracle in Japan that many other countries would envy. Um, As you mentioned in your introduction, although we hear a lot about uh, the decline in Japan's working age population, it's down about 3.5 million since uh, Abenomics started. Despite all that, uh, employment's up by over 2 million, and the unemployment rate is below 3%. It's at 2.8%. This is a pretty remarkable turn of events and still one that I think is somewhat underreported. Despite this, you know, you often hear that Abenomics is a failure, and that's because it hasn't yet hit the 2% inflation target that was unveiled with great fanfare back in 2013. And a big reason for that is that despite 
the tightness in the labour market, wage gains have been rather meagre. Now, and there are a couple of reasons for that. If you sort of dig into the statistics a bit more closely, you'll see that many of these new jobs that have been created are part-time jobs. And typically, a part-time job will pay less um, than a full-time job. So if you increase employment in that way, it tends to drag down average wages. So there's a sort of statistical illusion there. In addition, uh, we've also seen that the pay of part-time workers and temporary workers, although lower, uh, than core employees has been rising faster and uh, that's because it's more sensitive really to market conditions to macroeconomic conditions which have been uh, improving so it's really that the core employees full-time workers many of them in these rather stable employment relationships where wage gains have been surprisingly small i'm interested in the fact that the workforce has been rising despite the fact that the working age population has been falling is that because they've managed to reduce the number of people who are you know, temporarily out of the labour market? Or is it because people who are elderly and not in the official sort of working age population range are still working beyond retirement age? So it's partly women. The labour force participation rate of women has increased uh, quite dramatically. And that's partly uh, due to um, anxiety about financial situation, but it's more uh, to do with the fact that opportunities for women have improved. And there's been some efforts on the part of the government to change the working culture in Japan to encourage women to take part. And then also just the broader macroeconomic forces. If jobs are available, wages are up, then women who might otherwise have decided to stay home have decided to join the workforce instead. Uh, We're also seeing... Um, increased participation rates amongst uh, elderly workers who are sort of above the sort of 65 age range that you normally associate with uh, retirement. So it's a combination of, of both of those things. And then there are some people who uh, were neither women nor, nor elderly who've also uh, decided to join the labour force rather than waiting on the sidelines. The other problem we associate with the Japanese employment market is overwork, that people work too long hours. And there's a been some very unfortunate cases of suicide when people have felt too much under pressure. Is anything being done to tackle that issue? Yes, yeah, so that's become a very salient political issue at the moment. Um, there was a, a horrible case uh, back at the end of 2015 of a young woman, I believe she was just 24 year, years old, who jumped from the third floor of her dormitory after having worked, I think, over 100 hours, something like 105 hours of overtime on top of the normal working week uh, during the previous month. And so that generated a fair amount of political pressure. And they just agreed, uh, the union and the main business federation agreed with Prime Minister Abe to set a hard limit on the amount of overtime you can do in a month. That limit, though, is is a fairly, uh, how can we say, um, it's it's quite a high one. It's 100 hours of overtime. And uh, classically, 80 hours of overtime is considered the so-called Karoshi line. That's the the line uh, beyond which people become vulnerable to death by overwork, which the Japanese call Karoshi. Um, it's often, as you mentioned, uh, the result of suicide uh, rather than you know, literally um, dying at your desk. Um, but nonetheless, 80 hours is the sort of norm beyond which uh, this is seen as a potential danger. And yet this this hard limit they've introduced is, is 100 hours, not 80 hours. So there's still some controversy about whether that limit is, is low enough. My thanks to The Economist's senior economics writer and emerging markets editor, Simon Cox. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in the show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist 
or visit economist.com. Do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.